Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. A new paper published in the journal PNAS reports that police are a leading cause of death in young men, especially those of color. The report estimates that black men are twice as likely to be killed by police as men of other races. One of every 1,000 black men is killed by police. The figure is one in every 2,000 men overall. Latino men are 1.4 times more likely to be killed by police than white men. The figure is 1.5 for Native American men. Of women, 1 in 33,000 are killed by police, but black women are more likely than white women. Men between the ages of 25 and 29 are the group experiencing the most police killings, with an estimated mortality rate of 1.8 deaths per 1,000 men. That makes police the sixth leading cause of death in that age group behind accidents, heart disease, and suicide. And now we have a statement from former political prisoner Ray Luke Levasseur, who writes, Tom Manning's death on July 30th has me in the grip of an emotional riptide. I feel like part of me died with him. Tom was imprisoned at USP Hazleton, West Virginia, at the time of his death. The ostensible cause of death, according to the Federal Bureau of Prisons, was a heart attack. I received Tom's last letter on July 15th. He wrote that he was in dire circumstances, his medical needs treated with deliberate indifference, delays in receiving necessary medication, his body weak from lack of oxygen. Supporters scrambled to get a lawyer in to see him, but death arrived first. Tom battled the Bureau of Prisons' criminal negligence of his medical needs for the past 10 years, beginning when he almost died from an untreated knee infection while at USP Coleman, Florida. As a result of that infection, most of his knee was surgically removed and he was wheelchair-bound for the rest of his days. But he was not through fighting. When he arrived at FMC Butner, North Carolina, for further medical treatment, he was kept in solitary confinement under abysmal conditions for three years. Much-needed knee and shoulder surgeries were repeatedly delayed until pressure from Tom's supporters forced the Bureau of Prisons to act. But the surgeries came too late, and combined with the lack of necessary rehab, it ensured that Tom remained in a wheelchair. Tom always had the warrior spirit right to his last breath, Many more like him, and the ruling class would tremble. The ache in my heart over his passing will be forever. In remembrance, I offer words I wrote in 2014 for Tom's book, For Love and Liberty, which is a collection of his paintings. When Tom Manning and I first met 40 years ago, we were 27 years old and veterans of mule jobs, the Vietnam War, and fighting our way through American prisons. We also harbored an intense hatred of oppression and a burning desire to organize resistance. As members of a community action group called SCAR, we worked at survival programs, including a community bail fund, prison visitation program, and a radical bookstore. The Red Star North Bookstore drew the venom of police, surveillance, harassment, raid, and assault. Tom and I disappeared underground in the midst of this and COINTELPRO revelations. We remained underground for nearly 10 years, much of it on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list. We were tagged as terrorists and extremely dangerous because as members of a revolutionary group, we used explosives against targets of empire, predators of apartheid South Africa, Puerto Rico's colonialism, and the slaughter in Central America. We considered our work anti-terrorist. It was a time, you see, when activists were killed, imprisoned, tortured, and exiled. Winter in America, as Gil Scott Heron put it, and raging hell in El Salvador. 
It was a time when the U.S. subcontracted its terrorism, and if you were on the wrong end of it, you died. Sometimes when we met underground, I noticed Tom sketched on scraps of paper. I was impressed with how well he drew. I said to him, man, you got talent. Why not do landscapes, portraits, big pictures? His response was, no time for that, for our priority was taking down this wretched system that destroys and disrespects life. The government's mandate is that Tom die in prison, as our comrade Richard Williams did in 2005, after a long period of medical neglect and solitary confinement. Tom has risen beyond the gulag's attempts to strip his humanity. You can feel the dignity and spirit of resistance in his paintings. He is one of those carrying heavy burdens, be they the sans-culottes of the world, a Haitian healthcare provider, or a victim of police bullets. Political prisoners do not exist in a vacuum. They emerge from political and social conflicts. The ruling class and media attempt to criminalize, demonize, and marginalize these prisoners because recognition of political prisoners is de facto admission that serious conflicts exist and remain unresolved. In 2006, an exhibit of Tom Manning's paintings, Can Jail the Spirit, opened at the University of Southern Maine. Police organizations throughout the Northeast conducted an intense shut-it-down campaign. The police were particularly disturbed with the characterization of Tom as a political prisoner and his painting of Asada Shakur on display. When the police got to the university's corporate funders, the USM president capitulated and the exhibit was ordered shut down. The exhibit's supporters then carried Tom's paintings through the city streets and rallied at Congress Square. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard, reads Psalm 19.3, and the gravestone of black freedom fighters Jonathan and George Jackson. Voice, through its many forms, articulates vision. Call it subversive art, liberating art, art that challenges the one-dimensional. Tom's art is a voice among the dispossessed that transcends concrete and razor wire with an affirmation of life. The paintings of Tom Manning and the American Indian Movement activist Leonard Peltier, the creative work of Puerto Rican independentista Oscar Lopez Rivera, the poetry of anti-imperialist Marilyn Buck, which lives on, and the Earth Defender poems of Marius Mason, the spoken word of Mumia Abu-Jamal and Matulu Shakur. They are the voices of our political prisoners, principled and honorable men and women who communicate from isolation and suffering. We must not let their voices be suppressed. They need to be heard and celebrated by freedom-loving people everywhere. I extend deep gratitude to all of those who provided some measure of support and solidarity to Tom during his 34 years in prison. With Tom's passing, John Lahman remains the sole United Freedom Front prisoner. It's time to bring John home. Free all our political prisoners. Ray Luke Levasseur, Black August, August 1st, 2019. On August 7th, Centoya Brown stepped out of prison a free woman after 15 years of incarceration. A 16-year-old victim of male violence who killed the perpetrator in self-defense, Brown was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. She became one of over 100 people in Tennessee sentenced to life when they were teenagers. She was also one of the many other women in the U.S. who survived violence but were sentenced to decades of prison, if not death. On January 7th, Governor Bill Haslam commuted Brown's sentence to time served and made her eligible for release. She will remain on parole for 10 years. For years, grassroots groups have been working to free Brown and countless other women who survived violence but are behind bars for self-defense or other acts stemming from their abuse. About 33% of U.S. women have experienced violence from an intimate partner. Among incarcerated women, that rate is 77%. This week, we speak with Nicole Siegel about e-carceration, otherwise known as electronic monitoring. 
Siegel works with the group Indiana Against Decarceration, who have a set of upcoming events featuring people affected by decarceration. In this interview, Siegel discusses some of the issues with this method, everything from the high financial costs to users to the punitive measures those users face when their monitoring devices malfunction. Here's Mikul. I'm Mikul Siegel. I'm an activist and faculty member at Indiana University, and I've been one of the point people involved in Indiana Against Ecarceration. Ecarceration is electronic incarceration, an abbreviation for electronic incarceration, and it refers to all different kinds of digital monitoring and other kinds of electronic surveillance that people are increasingly coming under in, in the cyber age. There are two events that Indiana Against Ecarceration has organized that are coming up this weekend and next week. The first one is on Saturday, that's August 10th, in Indianapolis. It's from 4 to 6 p.m. at the Kepfer Institute, which is 3549 Boulevard Place in Indianapolis. And that one is a panel discussion, and there will be lots of time for audience comment. Everyone is welcome. The second event is in Bloomington, Indiana. That's a community roundtable. And that'll be on Wednesday, August 14th from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. at Switchyard Brewing, which is an all-ages venue at 419 North Walnut Street in Bloomington. Ecarceration is a problem everywhere. It is something that has been growing over the past 40 years, honestly. And actually, Indiana was one of the pilot states in which electronic monitors were experimented with back in, in the 1980s and 90s. So we were one of the first places that actually ever used incarceration, and now Indiana is one of the states that most uses it. Marion County, where Indianapolis is, is one of the counties that uses electronic monitoring more than most other counties, more than many other counties in the nation. And I don't, I don't really know why Indiana uses incarceration so much. I think there are a lot of reasons that also have to do with why Indiana is one of the most punitive states in the nation. It's one of the most disproportionately racist, given the actual population of people of color in Indiana. And it's one that most uses electronic monitoring. There are, though, a few recent political and judicial events that have made incarceration more intense and more intense of a threat in Indiana. So I'll tell you about two of those. One is the resentencing legislation that Indiana passed in 2014 that went into effect that summer, so now five years ago, which was touted as a way to reduce incarceration in the state because it downgraded certain felony convictions to misdemeanors and reclassified in general the system of what a given offense was worth in terms of sentence. And it allowed people who were serving felony sentence of less than a year to spend time in county jails instead of in state prisons, and a couple other measures that initially reduced some of the population in Indiana state prisons. Uh, however, it was accompanied by a truth in sentencing platform, which meant that people got less good time for good behavior in prison. So whereas before they'd been able to earn a certain number of days per day of good time, ahead of their release date after this sentencing, after this um, resentence, sentencing redefinition legislation, they uh, had to spend more of their sentence actually in prison. So it ended up actually not decreasing the number of people in state prisons in Indiana. But what it did do is immediately overload Indiana county jails. 
because it kept more people in the county jails for various offenses. And so there's been an enormous pressure on county jails across the state to expand and to build, and lots and lots of counties have been forced to look at the possibility of expanding or building new jails. So that's one big thing that makes us worry that electronic monitoring will be used to relieve some of that pressure on counties to build new jails. Because if they can just send people to house arrest instead of building a whole new facility for them, they might be tempted to do that. Especially because a lot of the electronic monitoring companies claim that these devices are cost neutral to the county because the user pays the fees, which is not entirely true. Counties actually do end up expending quite a bit on these devices, on the people who need to manage people on them and on the fees to the companies who are the service providers. But I think a lot of counties are really tempted to expand their electronic monitoring, especially pre-trial, right, because of the, of the pressure that the sentencing redefinition put on the jails. So the second reason that we're worried about e-carceration, digital monitoring, uh, digital incarceration and electronic monitoring in Indiana is because of the Indiana State Supreme Court passing Rule 26, which is this rule that begins to eliminate money bail. So money bail, as a lot of people know, it is incredibly unfair. It costs people who can least afford it a large amount of money. It exacerbates the racism and the class bias of the criminal justice system. It is fee extractive, right? It makes people pay not just that 10% that most people know that you have to pay in order to get a, a bail bond, but also all other kinds of fees and fines to the court and to other parts of the criminal justice system. So lots of people have been talking about how unfair money bail is, and Indiana is taking a really good step away from money bail, and that's great. But when that goes into effect in January of 2020, I think a lot of judges and a lot of courts will once again be really tempted to put people on electronic monitors since they won't have bail as a way to supposedly make them show up to their hearings, to their trials. They'll try to use an electronic monitor instead. Despite the fact that there is no empirical evidence that electronic monitors make people show up to trial, you know, what people need in order to show up to trial are reminders that they can actually receive, you know, and transportation. The Bail Project, which is a national project that's been working on paying bail and ending bail, has studied this question very carefully and has determined that people do not need to be inconvenienced, humiliated, and made to suffer through the use of an electronic monitor in order to show up to their trials. They need a reminder that they actually receive and transportation. I think that a lot of people who are involved in the criminal justice system, or even people who aren't involved in it, who are just outside observers, just sort of without thinking, they just assume that electronic monitoring is an alternative to incarceration. And, you know, they think, oh, well, I wear a Fitbit. You know, I've got a phone in my pocket. That doesn't inconvenience me. That can't be that bad. And they, they do not understand what's involved in electronic monitoring. And they think of it as a, as a very simple, humane alternative to incarceration. Oh, you just get to stay home. It's, you know, it's much easier. But it's actually highly, it's, a, it's onerous to be on an electronic monitor. Difficult. It puts pressure on, uh, on families, on kids, on jobs. People are very restricted in their movements. When you're on an electronic monitor in some counties in Indiana, you get 45 minutes a week outside of your regular routine to and from work to take care of everything you might have to take care of in that week, grocery shopping, laundry, visits to the pharmacy, whatever else. There are many people who can't visit you 
when you are on an electronic monitor, anybody with a criminal history. And so lots of families where there's multi-generational incarceration, you know, their parents or their kids can't visit them while they're on house arrest because of these restrictions. Puts a lot of pressure on kids. It makes kids very anxious. They know that when the device beeps or flashes, it might mean that mom or dad is being taken away again and it, uh, it increases the stress on kids increases the stress on relationships because partners of people on electronic monitoring have to take up so much more of the burdens of daily uh, regular life. So not only is there no evidence that electronic monitoring helps people to show up to their trials, but there's lots of evidence that it actually prevents them from showing up to their trials because it increases the difficulty of just managing everyday life. There are some radio-controlled electronic monitors, and there are GPS devices. My sense is that the GPS ones are more and more common. They all have to be charged, so you, you need to be up on your electric bill. You need to be paying your electric bill, uh, and you need to be able to charge the device for at least two hours and sometimes overnight. This also means that sometimes the devices begin to lose power, especially when they're a little older or if they malfunction. And people who are out and about with the devices might have to stop everything they're doing and go plug in. And you know, the device is on your ankle. You can't take it off. So you have to sit near enough to the electrical outlet that you can be plugged in. Some people who work active jobs, like say in a warehouse or a factory, can't get themselves, can't be plugged in while they work. So they have to stop work, they have to suspend it. Um, sometimes, even if you are an office worker and you have an electrical outlet right underneath your desk, um, you might have been able to hide your electronic monitor under some long pants or something, but as soon as it begins to malfunction and beep and you have to be plugged in, you are immediately outing yourself to your boss and your employees and sometimes also to clients if you're in a sales, a retail situation. And some people have gotten fired because their employers thought it made the customers uncomfortable to see somebody who is electronic monitored. It's a big bulky device. It's about the size of like a little bit smaller than a cell phone but much thicker. It's tight around your ankle. Usually people who are wearing pants it's still visible and some people, you know, especially in the Indiana summer, most people would rather not wear long pants. So they're visible. They're a source of stigma. You know, the stigma of incarceration accrues to people who are electronically monitored, even if they are pretrial and not yet judged, not yet convicted of any crimes. They're innocent until proven guilty, but they are still incurring all the stigma, all the looks in the street, all the people pulling their children closer or crossing to the other sidewalk to avoid them. And all of the kinds of assumptions that people make, you know, in, in workplace or other situations. Sometimes if you work in a, uh, in a building with, without good GPS signal, like say you work in a basement or a loading dock, or say you are a driver and you have to be mobile for your job, the devices can go out of range, then they send an error signal or a violation signal to the manager of the device and that can get a person violated for the conditions that have been placed on them for their conditional release. A lot of the risk in wearing an electronic monitor is that the malfunctioning of the device will send the person not just back to jail to wait for their trial but to prison itself because the, uh, the violation on the electronic monitor isn't just like, oh, oh well, that didn't work, let's just try plan A, you know, wait 
in jail for your trial, but it actually counts as a criminal conviction. So people people risk a great deal and sometimes, you know, and sometimes a person can it can be user error, but some of those user errors are very very mild, you know. Somebody who's going to be speaking at our event on Saturday is going to tell various stories about her life on an electronic monitor. She was on it for a year and a half. And one thing that happened to her is that she was working a job that had 12-hour shifts. And she was just absolutely exhausted. And she came home and basically um, fell asleep and forgot to plug her monitor in. And she got a violation. And she was reincarcerated and lost that job. So the devices really have all kinds of potential to bring their users much worse outcomes than staying in jail or than being out on bail, and certainly much worse outcomes than just letting people out on their own recognizance without an electronic monitor, which is just the simplest and common sense thing to do. And that's one of the things that Indiana Against Ecarceration is calling for, one of our three platform planks. Just let people out of jail on their own recognizance while they wait for trial. Get them the reminders that they need, and if you want an extra program to make sure that people will show up at their trials, arrange transportation, facilitate transportation, hand out bus passes, create a bus route that goes by the jail. You know, there are ways to make it easier on people who need to show up to uh, the courthouse, and there are ways to make it a lot harder, and electronic monitors are the latter. One really interesting thing is that a lot of the bail bonds companies have just flipped right over into electronic monitor service providing. And so people were kind of outraged about bail bondsmen and how fee extractive and unfair how they were preying on the most vulnerable in society these companies were. And these are the exact same companies that now are providing the electronic monitors. So yeah, electronic monitors have fees left, right, and center. You pay, someone was just telling me recently in Marion County, they looked this up. In Marion County, you pay something like 140 bucks up front. You also, you pay various other startup fees. You pay $14 a day, a day, including weekends. And, you know, meanwhile, remember, you're also having to make sure that your telephone and your electricity bill are paid. So if you're having any issues, you know, like financially, you're going to be cutting food or stuff for your kids because these things otherwise are violations that will send you back to jail and possibly to prison. There are fees when they malfunction, there are fees for repair, and then there are all the regular just slew of court fees and fines that people are subject to, uh, which you have to continue to pay, otherwise that's also a violation of the conditions of your, of your awaiting trial outside of your house arrest. So they, they are way, in some cases, way more expensive than bail, uh, especially if the person is on them for a while. I mean, think about $14 a day. How much do you have to earn in order to, how much extra do you have to earn in order to pay 140 bucks up front, a bunch of other fines and fees, and then $14 a day? The other two planks of the platform of Indiana Against Decarceration are uh, no cash bail for real because uh, we're worried that basically 
even though Rule 26 says no more cash bail in Indiana, that there still will be some, some judges will still use it, and that electronic monitors are basically another form of cash bail, except an even more onerous one, and one that is uh, still making profits for private companies and not actually helping the counties to save money, ultimately. Uh, and the other is no new jails, because jails are the other tempting alternative given the overcrowding in Indiana's system. And we, we do not need new jails. We definitely need smart and reasonable alternatives for our family members, our community members, our neighbors, our fellow citizens in Indiana. So we do not need any more jails. We do not need electronic monitors. We need good reminders, good transportation, and accountability within the system. And we need to move away from these rent-seeking, profit-driven, just corporate-enriching practices that are inhumane. Ecarceration is being used intensely for immigrants who come into the country and then have a pending case and are, are, are released into society to await their cases. And I'm not surprised that this has been one of the arenas of the greatest use of electronic monitoring in the country because immigrant incarceration has also been one of the greatest arenas for private prisons. Private prisons have been employed more, much more for immigrants than for state or federal prisons. And I, I don't know why that is, except that I think that U.S. citizens maybe have a, you know, less of a sense of commonality and solidarity and more of a sense that immigrants are expendable and second-class citizens and don't need to have their rights safeguarded uh, like everybody else. And I think especially people who are worried about immigrants' rights, who are interested in uh, the issue as it's becoming such a political football right now, hot potato, that they should be thinking about electronic monitoring as an immigrants' rights issue as well. People who are fighting for immigrants' rights should fight against electronic monitoring. I'll just tell you one horror story that has stuck in my mind, uh, which is that a young woman who was on electronic monitoring, her device malfunctioned, and she had to go get it repaired on an emergency basis, so she did. And she left her child with her mom. Her mom had a previous case from 21 years prior. She had had no reoffenses in those 21 years. But because her mom had a criminal conviction 21 years prior, she was um, judged by DCS to have knowingly left her child in the care of an I forget what the term is for DCS of, you know, an uh, unauthorized or um, incompetent, un an unsafe adult. And DCS took her kid away. She had to then, you know, work and work and work to meet all of the barriers that DCS puts up for people who enter that system to get her child back. She lost custody of her child because her EM device malfunctioned and she tried to deal with it. It's heartbreaking. I mean, imagine... What would you do? You know you have to get your device fixed. Your mom lives with you. You leave your kid with your mom and you go and deal with it. You're not allowed to do that. How can it be that you can't leave a kid with his grandmother? For folks who would like to get involved but who maybe can't come to either of these two upcoming events on Saturday or Wednesday, we have a website, notbetterthanjail.org. Um, we have a Google group, so if you'd like to join on and get our emails, 
you can go to our website and send us an email and we will add you to that Google group. And Indiana Against Decarceration is going to be planning a series of other events in a large number of other Indiana counties over the upcoming months. We would love to have your participation. We would love to come organize an event in your county. Um, if you have been on electronic monitoring, we want to hear your stories. Uh, get in touch with us through our website. Um, if you are a politician or a criminal justice official wanting to learn more, we would love to have conversations with you. So we are really looking for um, folks who would like to join us and folks who would like to learn more. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.